This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, called The Good Life, and today we are going to be on a section on prayer. It's Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. So if you um, have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that Bible and turn to page 474. And uh, you'll be able to uh, track along with us as we look at this section of Scripture. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. This is a pretty familiar uh, section of Scripture for those familiar with the Bible. And this will be unapologetically a pretty simple message. Um, And sometimes that's the best kind. Um, Something that will be simple, but I trust very applicable for all of us. So let's read uh, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. This is God's word to us through the, through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ who uttered this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For, whoever, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, as... Caleb mentioned when we did the corporate confession and, uh, and assurance uh, earlier, last week we looked at the section which talked about judging, judging other people, and uh, judging other people unfairly. And from there, Jesus transitions into a section on prayer. That's what this passage is about. And so it's kind of, someone may ask, you know, why, why are we going from judging people to prayer? Is this just sort of a random Uh, Is Jesus sort of teaching randomly, or did Matthew, um, you know, just take snippets of what he said, and when he put it together, it feels kind of random? I love what Sinclair Ferguson said about this, coming after the section on judging and coming at this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a book that we have out there on the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that no one comes to this point in the Sermon on the Mount without being profoundly aware of his or her need. Is that not true? I mean, that section last week, uh, just about judging others, that, that, just, that, that just slays us, doesn't it? I mean, who, who reads that and goes, wow, yeah, those judgy people, they really need to deal with that stuff, you know? <laughs> who deals with that? Just think of where are we right now? I mean, starts off, Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom, that kingdom righteousness his righteousness is, is being poor in spirit. It's mourning. It's being meek. It's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's, it's blessing those who persecute us uh, and oppose us. Uh, he, then he goes into the law and he speaks to us about anger in our hearts and says that that's like murder. He speaks about lust in our hearts and says that's like 
adultery. He speaks about uh, our promises and what we do when someone sins against us, not to retaliate. He talks about loving those who are enemies. Then he goes through a passage talking about giving to the needy with a pure heart in secret so that no one knows. He talks about praying in secret, fasting, calls us to fast without letting other people know as well. He talks to us about worry and anxiety, not to be worried about things, but to trust him and then not to judge others. And so at this point in the sermon, anyone with any spiritual temperature at all that's listening to anything that he's saying that that realizes this is what it means to live in the kingdom must come to the point and say, oh, God, help me. So I love what Ferguson says. I think it's a most appropriate time in the sermon for a prayer break uh, to talk for a moment about prayer. And that's what he does. The passage is about uh, asking God uh, for things. Look at verse 7. It starts with the word ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Look at verse 11. That's the final verse of the section. Your Father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Ask and will be given to those who ask him. One way to interpret scripture, there's a lot of uh, ways to look at words that help us understand the meaning of a passage. One is repetitive words. When a word is repeated in a section, then that's likely the theme that is being taught. But another is when you have a section, you can look at sort of what is the beginning and what is the end. What are the bookends of the section? And that often will give us a clue as to what the section's about. So this is about asking. Ask it, it will be given. Your father will give to those who ask him. And the section breaks down into two kind of two big ideas. One is in verses 7 to 8 where he is speaking about persistent prayer. And then verses 9 through 11, he is speaking about expectant prayer. So I'm going to talk about those two things. We talk about persistent prayer and expectant prayer. First of all, persistent prayer. Jesus calls his disciples to three actions, doesn't he? It's, It's very obvious. Ask, seek, and knock, and each of these has to do with prayer. Asking is simply making a request of God in prayer. Ask is to make a request. Seeking, uh, well, this implies looking. Not only asking, but perhaps some action attached to it. Seeking is to look to the Lord. That's a way to think about prayer. It's not just asking, but we look to the Lord in prayer. Or maybe we look to the Lord seeking him. the, The scripture speaks of seeking the Lord. Maybe we're seeking the Lord for wisdom. Or we're seeking the Lord uh, for his plan. Or we're seeking the Lord for direction. Or we're just seeking the Lord for his person. We're looking for the Lord himself because we need his help in some area. So asking, seeking. Next it says knocking. Knock and the door will be open to you. Knocking Well, it means that we're standing. It's a picture. Jesus isn't talking, you know, this isn't literal, obviously. He's not saying you should be doing that when you pray or something. But he's saying that knocking means we're standing before a closed door. Knocking means we are looking for access. We lack access and we are looking for access. Maybe we have tried to open a door and we failed uh, and we're asking God to open a door. This is 
how we can pray when we don't see an opening and we need God to open a way. I mean, some of you are in that situation this morning. You, you feel like something in front of you is a massively closed door. And you feel like, you know, it's an impossibility. And you need God to open up this impossible situation for you. Or maybe the door is opened and you now, you find yourself standing in front of another door. Like the uh, introduction to the old show, Get Smart, is just one door after another. I feel like I'm never making a passageway. I open up one door and there's another door in front of me. So each of these have to do with making a request of God, asking, seeking, knocking. But there, there appears to be a progression in this, asking, seeking, and knocking. There appears to be a progression, and I read, I don't remember where I read this, but I read someone's illustration that I thought really made this clear to me, uh, and especially, this is going to be very clear to any mother of toddlers in the room. I, I, I don't have enough mother of toddler illustrations, uh, and so today is a mother of toddler illustration, uh, but it's about prayer, and I think it really shows how these three are a progression. So the, the, the author said, you know, imagine a toddler sitting in the room and sort of playing by himself in the room, mom's outside of the room, and the toddler uh, just sort of calls out, because that's what toddlers do. It just calls out, Mom, help me. Meaning, Mom, you come here and deliver what I need. Mom, come help me. That is asking. Well, Mom doesn't respond, so the toddler gets up and begins to look, looking up and down, walking down this hallway, looking in the kitchen. Mom, where are you? I need you to help me. Mom, where are where did you go? I need help. That's seeking. And then finally, comes down to a hallway and sees a shut door. It's a bedroom door to the master bedroom and it is shut. Probably the illustration goes better. I don't know if I should say it in church, but it's probably a bathroom door. That's really probably what it is. But I already said it, so we'll go with it. So there's a bathroom door, and it is shut. And so the toddler has been seeking all over the place, looking for mom, yelling, and finally comes to the door and turns the handle, and it will not open. So the toddler begins to bang on the door. Mom, are you in there? What are you doing? I need you to help me. Can I come in there? I need you to help me now. Knocking. That's what knocking is. There's asking, there is looking around, is seeking, and there is knocking on the door saying, Are you in there? I need help. There's one more aspect of this asking, seeking, knocking that's important that would have perhaps on the first readers who read uh, the Greek text would, would have landed on them a little bit differently than it does on us, and that is this, that the, these verbs are in a, uh, in a tense in Greek such, such that they are a continual action. These commands, these invitations are continual. So we could read it, ask and continue to ask. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock, not just once, but keep on knocking. Jesus is advocating a persistence in prayer. A, a, a prayer that may persist and progress uh, in its nature. 
But each of these stand on their own, asking, seeking, knocking, and they are to be an ongoing pattern of communication to God with our needs. Now, why is that? Why would they be continual? Is God saying, hey, show me how bad you really want this, and if you want it bad enough, okay, I'll act. Or is God saying, hey, it's not about sincerity, it's not about praying with biblical truth in view, it's about quantity. You know, if you just keep doing it, if you get to a certain amount of prayers, if you say the prayer enough times, I will answer. Is he looking for quantity? Now, we may look at that and say, well, no, we don't believe, we don't believe in repetitive prayers, that if we you know, get enough, if we say it enough times, obviously he's going to then answer. Now, we don't believe that on the surface, but it's interesting. We do kind of believe that a quantity of prayer will twist God's arm. Sometimes this happens in inviting other people. We've got to get everybody praying which is a good idea. We had to get everybody praying. It's a good idea. If, what's the motive of that? That was a good question. So get everybody, get the prayer chain, get the email, get it on Facebook, get it out, get, it, get everybody praying. Why? Because when we had 12 people praying, God wasn't going to answer. But at the 13th prayer, he said, okay, you got me? Is that the reason? Is God just responding to quantity? It's good to get everybody praying because we're called to bear one another's burdens. It's good to get everybody praying because we want to intercede for one another. And God does answer the prayers of his people. So that's good. We just want to be careful that it's not a quantity prayer. That continue going on that if we pray for 21 days or 40 days or if we get 101 instead of 100 people, we just need to leave the math aside on this one. Math doesn't really work uh, in relating to God on these kinds of things. The reason, I believe, that he calls us to continue to a continual act of prayer is because, uh, well, this is about seeing our need for God. If every prayer was answered after six requests or the 22nd person added to the prayer chain who actually prayed, didn't just say they would, but did, if that was all it took, well, that we'd work the formula. We'd just work the formula. We'd say, okay, man, I asked... Six times, I got it. We got X number of people, we got it. This is about showing us our need, the recognition of our need. Sometimes one of the kindest things God can do to us is not answer our request as quickly as we want it answered. Because it keeps us in a posture of recognizing our need. Here's the reality. If we could see the great things that God has called each of us to, if we could really grasp the stretching life of what it means to live in the kingdom for the king, as he describes in this sermon, if we were really gripped by that, if we were aware in our soul regularly of what kingdom righteousness looks like as we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount, if we had a vision for how God wants to work in us and through us for his glory and for the love of our neighbor, if we could see the height that he's called, how he wants to transform us by the power of his Holy Spirit, if we could really see that, we would be crying out to God for his help. Because we would look at that and go, the Christian life is not manageable. The kingdom life is not doable. I can't get the three steps to living a life for the glory of God. It is a dependent heart. And so the continual asking and seeking and knocking is about humbling ourselves before the Lord 
recognizing our need and seeing God meet us in our need. We never get, another reason it's continual is you never get past, okay, I asked, I can stop, I never, I need to ask for God for anything. I never need to seek him. God will ensure that there's always things in our lives that call us to seek him. There will always be things in our lives that call us to say, God, I'm desperate. I'm knocking on the door again. I mean, there may be moments where you go, wow, everything's perfect. But it doesn't stay that way. And it's really not perfect until he returns anyway. Now, Jesus encourages us to persist in prayer by giving six promises in these two verses. Ask and promise it will be given to you. Seek and promise you will find. Knock and promise it will be open to you. And then it's repeated. Everyone who, uh, everyone who asks, verse 8, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. So he gives us these, I mean, what more can he say to us? In two verses, how could he, how could he stack it uh, any stronger He urges us to persist, assuring us that God will respond. Not because we finally wear him down, not because we overcome his reluctance to help. Though Jesus does talk about persistence in prayer, he doesn't talk about it as a way that you finally, back to the toddler illustration, say it and whine it so many times that you finally just give in. Okay, he's not that kind of a parent that we just finally, he gets tired of hearing us. Okay, I know I shouldn't, but just eat whatever you want, you know. That's not how God works. It would be wrong to walk away from this section of scripture thinking that the main point is if I just pray harder and I just pray more, I'll get what I'm asking for when I sort of want God to answer. Um, The It's clearly about asking. It's clearly about persistence in prayer. But the big takeaway point is not that if I pray more, I'll get more. The big takeaway point is not about really our prayer at all. It's about the one to whom we pray. The big takeaway point here is that we pray to a loving father who knows our needs and who cares and who gives good gifts. If we walk away from these four verses of Scripture with the primary burden, I need to grit my teeth and just pray more and harder, we have missed it. We're to walk away with a picture of our loving Father, which motivates us to continual prayer, which is, after all, fellowship with him. That moves us to expectant prayer, persistent and expectant prayer. Verse 9, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So we see here in this section, Jesus is wanting us to know that when we come to God in prayer, we come to a father. This is the exact point he made in the Lord's Prayer. Our father who is in heaven. This was radical language. This was not the common way of addressing God uh, for a first century Jew. So Jesus is introducing this, uh, this glorious picture. We've just spoken of God as judge. Everybody would have been clear on that. We've just spoken of as you judge others, 
so God will judge you. So everybody's clear on God as judge, but now we're talking about God as Father. We are asking and seeking and knocking and humbling ourselves and listening to and communing with and opening our heart to a Father. Our Father, yes, he's a judge, but in prayer, we need to, the, the dominant picture that Jesus gives us is that of Father. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, this is how he talks about this, the difference in judge and father, the difference in the fact that we've been acquitted before the judge because of Christ and the glory of a father. He says this, it certainly is a wonderful thing that God justifies sinners and that as the righteous judge of all the earth is able to acquit us. But Jesus points to something that seems to belong to a higher order of things. This judge takes out adoption papers on our behalf, places his hands on our shoulders, and says, my child, I want you to share in the inheritance of all my riches and blessings. You will be my son, my daughter, from now on, come with me and ask me when you are in need. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture that, uh, of, the, of God as a father who provides for our needs, who cares for our needs. And to reveal the wonder of God as father and to experience God as father, Jesus uses an argument that is from the lesser to the greater. He uses the words, how much more? This is a, this is a type of argument that he uses in other places uh, in his teaching as well. The lesser to the greater. He contrasts an earthly father with the heavenly father and says, how much more? So he says, if you are a father and your son asks you for a bread, a loaf of bread, a piece of bread, whatever it is, you wouldn't give him a stone. Why not? Well, that would be mocking. If the child's coming with a legitimate need, the child is hungry. He's not asking for something, you know, uh, a fancy or whatever. He's just asking for bread. It means he's hungry. If your child comes and says that he or she is hungry, then you wouldn't mock them. You wouldn't trick them. Uh, you, you wouldn't ignore their real need and play a joke on them or try to, you know, give them a, a, a disguised stone so they bite into it. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. Then he says, if your child came to you and asked for a fish, or modern translation, a fish stick, if he came asking for that, <laughs> you, you would not give him a snake. So it wouldn't be like, hey, Dad, can I have some fish? Sure, sit down. Okay, I'm going to put it on your plate. Okay, here it is. Blah, it's a snake. I mean, you wouldn't do that. I mean, who would, who would scare their child? Who would potentially harm their child by doing something like that? If your child comes to you, here's Jesus' point. If your child comes to you with a real need, I'm hungry. You're not going to pull a cruel joke. You're not going to mock them. You're not going to put them in danger. 
you're not going to harm them in any way. And our immediate response is, of course we're not. I'm a good dad. I'm a decent guy. Of course I wouldn't harm my child when they're asking for something that they really need because I'm a decent person and a loving parent. But Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus says you wouldn't do that and you are evil. Verse 11, if you then who are evil, he just says it matter-of-factly, nonchalantly, not really worried about the fact this is a cultural bombshell and everybody's going to freak out in the culture when good, decent people are called evil before God's standard of holiness. He's really not worried about, is this a popular conception in the culture today? He's not really worried about if anybody's going to take offense and, you know, go to social media saying Jesus said these good people are evil. Uh, He's not really worried about any of that. He just states the fact as it is. You are fallen. You are evil. This makes the whole point. That if you are who are evil fallen people compared to the standard of God's perfection, if you who are evil, wouldn't hurt a child you love. How much more would the perfect, sinless father love you? How much more would the God of all mercy, who's never, never sinned, never harmed his children in a cruel, uh, in a cruel sort of a way, your father who always has your best in view. Your father who loves you with an indescribable love, a sacrificial love. Your father who has created the very notion of love. Your heavenly father who is perfect love so that you as an earthly father or earthly parent in your very best moment, in your very most sacrificial loving moment, you are a faint, dim, very small image of the God who is perfect. You're just reflecting something of him. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more or to provide for them, how much more will the Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's the point. He says you need to, he's making a contrast. He says you need to consider what you would do for your child and realize you're evil, you're fallen, how much more would the perfect loving God of the universe take care of you? It's a contrast from lesser to greater. Now, this is wonderful good news, but I I think it's hard for some of us to grasp. And I think there's maybe two groups of people I'd like to address. I think there's, I mean, there may be many kinds of people who find this difficult, but I think there's probably two groups of people for whom this passage is sort of hard to get your head around. Uh, One would be those of you in the room who say, whenever I read image in the Bible about God as Father, I just struggle. I struggle because of my relationship with my Father. And so this language of asking your Father, seeking after looking for, wanting to know and be with and encounter your father. When you're sort of shut out and something feels inaccessible and too big for you and impossible, going to your father. I mean, that image doesn't click for some of us because you would say, well, my father, I never knew my father. 
so I, I can't really connect with the picture Jesus is giving. Or I knew my father a little, but he left when I was very young and has been absent. Or my father lived in the same house as me uh, growing up, so I certainly knew my father, but not really. He was always doing something else. He was always busy. He was really involved in his work or something else. And I feel like he was absentee. Or maybe your father was not absentee. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he was abusive. And, and so you, you hear this kind of language and you say, boy, this is nice for all those people who were raised in, by loving fathers. I'm glad they can relate to this. But I just sort of feel outside all the passages of Scripture this is the second one in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has taught about prayer. And he said, you're to view God as Father and address God as Father. And there would be a percentage of us in the room who would say, that touches on a nerve for me that is at best difficult to understand and at worst really painful or grieving, grieving even perhaps for you. I, I want to say that there are no simple answers um, to why your father was not there. I, don't, I can't answer that. Or why your father acted in a sinful, hurtful way to you and why the heavenly father didn't intervene or do provide some other uh, family upbringing uh, for you. There's no simple answers. There's no pat answers, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to offend you. I mean, I wouldn't offend you by trying to uh, give you some sort of weak answer. Um, but having said that, I would say that this passage, I think, is helpful in recovering, in recovering for you the image of God as Father because God is, uh, Jesus is making a radical contrast between a good and decent Father. And he's basically saying, you can't even describe a good and decent father as like me because how much more? I'm so much greater. I'm so much greater than a father who is evil, who is decent because he's providing food for his child, but, but ultimately is evil on the scale of holiness and righteousness. So absolutely, there's an advantage to growing up with a good earthly father. You'd rather have a good earthly father, father than a bad one, of course. But God is infinitely more loving. God is infinitely better than a good father. The point of the passage is not if you have a good father, then you'll really kind of get the God thing because he's like your father, but just take your father and multiply him times two or times three or times a hundred. That's God. No, it's take your good father and on a scale of holiness, he's evil. And whatever he does that is good, the heavenly father is infinitely, indescribably better than that. So it's not he's just like that. It's that he's far greater. The, the, the illustration is not one of comparison. It's one of contrast. And so the reality is that he is much more. He is much more than the absent father, than the poor father, than the abusive father. He is nothing like that. 
But he's also way more than the good father, the present father. He is on a different scale. So we all are going to be somewhat limited if we look to any human and say, that's what God is like. We can see glimpses of God in humans. We can see glimpses of God through the Holy Spirit working through a person for sure. But God ultimately is greater than those glimpses. He wants to elevate all of our understanding of him to see that God is a father that it's not, he's not scalable to human fathers. He is entirely greater and more loving. And I think that's why Jesus uses the word evil here. He didn't say, hey, you guys are pretty good. He's a little better. He said, you're evil how much more? Even when you're doing the right thing, how much more? Even when you're loving your kids, how much more? is the Father. It calls all of us to look and say, Lord, you are great beyond what I can imagine. If that is you, I I think perhaps the first application of this scripture is to start with the prayer, Lord, reveal yourself to me as the Father who is unlike any earthly father, who is greater and more glorious than any. Reveal to me your love, which is beyond all loves. And not just praying that once, but making that your asking and keeping on asking prayer. Your seeking and keeping on seeking prayer. Because the Lord prays here that if you seek, you will find. The knock and keeping on knocking prayer. Lord, open the door to help me know you as Father. Lord, I'm seeking you as the Heavenly Father. Help me put away false conceptions. Lord, free me from that and help me to know you as you are. That might be your application of ask, seek, and knock to know know God as Father. For others of us, this is a hard concept to grasp. Maybe not the Father verses, but the persistent verses. Because you look at this and you go, hey, I have been praying for years. I have been asking seeking, knocking for years, some of, some of you decades, asking God for something, seeking God for something. You've wanted to be married. You've wanted to have a child. You have prayed a righteous, good prayer for your spouse to be converted your child to be converted, your parent to be converted. And it's particularly weighing on you because your parent is now aging and getting closer, uh, closer to death. You prayed for healing for yourself or for someone you love. Some of us have feel like we have asked, sought, knocked for the freedom from a temptation that just dogs us all our lives, a temptation that you hate and a sin that you give into at points, but it just feels like it will not let you go. And it's, it's a good prayer. Lord, free me from lust, anger, jealousy, greed, uh, self-hatred, Free me from the, this is a good prayer, but 
you feel like it's still there. You've prayed for a job that fits you. You've moved from job to job, never finding a job that you say, this is what I was created to do. So you live with this frustration maybe, or you've prayed for a financial turnaround and there's no turnaround. Well, like the first one, I cannot answer. I cannot answer and explain as a creature the ways of the creator, the ways of God. These are good, sincere requests. I mean, the Bible does say in James 4 that we have not because we ask not, but when we do ask, we ask with selfish motives. So there's certain prayers that God, uh, the Bible teaches, doesn't ask because if he answered them, we would use them in a selfish way. But that's not the kind of things I'm talking about here. I mean, I, these, these, prayers are not, these prayers are not those prayers. I can only reiterate the promise that he is a father Verse 11, who knows how to give good gifts to his children. No, if you are a father know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I can say this, that the promise of the text is that he will give good gifts. I cannot explain the ways of God, but I can say the text doesn't say that he will answer the request in the way we make the request in the timing we ask for. I can say that, that that he is a good father and that we knock and keep knocking, but God, God's good gifts some, sometimes aren't what we see as a good gift because ultimately the greatest gift God can give us is to make us more like his son. There's no greater gift than to be transformed to be like Christ. That is the greatest gift. And sometimes that comes through seasons of where where we're praying, how long, O Lord, and where are you? Sometimes it's those difficulties that make us more like Jesus, that that make us more like our Father. The greatest... Uh, the greatest gift is not to sort of have life as I would script it. The greatest gift is to know my Father through the power of the Spirit and to be more and more like Jesus. Sometimes when we knock on the door, we think when the door starts to crack and open that this is it. I'm going to get what I asked for. But sometimes what's on the other side is so much greater than what we asked for. It's the Father himself. He's standing on the other side of the door. When we seek, we think we're seeking that thing that will make us happy, that thing that's a good request that we really want. But when we seek, when we come to the end and we say, ah, it's God. He is what we seek. He is the ultimate good gift. He may not change our circumstances, but he offers himself to us. He will be with us, his presence and his power. This is the exact thing that happened uh, with Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Paul uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the unsurpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Thorns hurt. I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Okay, Satan came to harass him to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said, I asked, I sought, I knocked on the door. Get this thorn out of me. It's from the devil. It's hindering me. And God opens the door and says, I'm not going to remove the thorn. Here I am. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you strength that you would not have with the removal of the thorn. We think the greatest thing would be to remove the thorn. And God says, the greatest thing is my power and my presence for you. So don't stop asking. Don't stop knocking. Paul had a divine inspiration that God wasn't going to remove the thorn. We don't get that. We typically don't know that God's not going to answer this prayer the way we're asking it. So if it's a righteous prayer, we keep asking. But ultimately, we ask for God and his strength and his presence We pray, Lord, remove this weakness from me. But if you are glorified and your power is found in this weakness, I'd rather be strong in you. I'd rather be near you. I'd rather know your embrace. I'd rather know your sweet communion. I'd rather know the Father's love in an intimate way than I would have any circumstantial change in my life. One other group, and then we're done. The other group I'd like to talk to are those you just haven't really asked. There's some of us who read this, and we're not the ones who've asked forever. We're not the ones who are struggling with our Father. We're just not asking and asking and asking. We're not seeking and knocking. We're a little bit like, our knocks are a little bit like me when I was young and on a mission trip, and they told us we're going door-to-door knocking for evangelism, okay? So when you're desperate for the Lord, you're kind of knocking, you're knocking like that. When you're in high school and you're going door-to-door evangelism, you kind of knock like this. Oh, guess no one's home. (laughs) Let's go to... We're supposed to do this whole block, and the mission leader comes over and goes, you guys are already done with the block? How did you do the whole block in 30 seconds? I don't know. We knocked on each door. Well, it was more like an air knock, but, you know, no one was home. So that's some of us. We do like a little air knock, a little petite, little little wimpy knock, and then move on. We don't know the first thing about persistence in prayer and what the Lord wants you to do, what the Lord's calling you to. He's saying he is your father, so come on. He is the God of the universe that loves you. So come on, bring your requests. Seek him. Knock for him. For some of us in the room, prayer is a last resort. And God is saying, no, this is a first response. This is not a last resort. Come and bring your need to the Lord. He gives as we humble ourselves. God is not into blessing our self-sufficiency. God is not into pouring his power out upon our self-importance. And I've got this. God is about pouring out his power on those who come to a loving father for small things, for big things, for impossible things. Not settling for, well, I guess this is impossible, but coming to the God of the universe who's not just the judge overall, not just the creator of all, but also your father. It is coming to him and saying, God, I see my need. I Grant me grace to ask and keep asking, to seek and keep seeking, to knock and seek, keep knocking. And as I find answers, as I find you, as I find you active, may I only be inspired to do it more. Because this draws us into communion with the Father. There's nothing more exciting than seeing God answer prayer. God's saying changing our lives. 
And he changes our lives, and the answers to prayer, again, are not always the circumstances we expect, but God will answer the prayer to change our life. God will answer the prayer to conform us to the image of Christ. God will answer the prayer to reveal himself as Father, to hold us, to carry us, to guide us. God wants us to see our need, to see him as Father, so that we are driven to persistent prayer and expectant prayer. Persistent because he's a Father. We're persistent because we're expectant. We're persistent because of the one we're talking to. Persistent because God is a good Father. The more we know God is Father, the more we will pray persistently and expectantly. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.